Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And Hannah, since we're talking about witch hunts today, I would like to start off by chatting a little bit about our favorite non-Harry Potter fictional witches in the sorting chat. I love this idea, Marcel. I love it so mm. much. It's almost like I came up with it myself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Someone smart came up with it. Well, everybody here is very smart, so it could have been any of us. Mm-hmm. But really, I just want to talk about Baba Yaga for the most part. Can I just tell you how much I love Baba Yaga? Iconic home design. Tell me who Baba Yaga is, because I feel like I hear a lot about Baba Yaga, and I don't, I, we haven't met, so. I've, you don't know her. I don't know her. <laughs> She's a, like, Eastern European witch myth, like the witch mm-hmm. who lives in the woods. But sort of a couple of really exciting and distinct things about her are that her home has chicken legs. What? Yeah, she's got this really cool cabin that's on these, like, long chicken legs. Okay. So, like, her cabin can move around. I'm doing a, I'm doing a chicken leg thing with my hand right now. So ca- are you? Yes. <laughs> yes, I am. An anatomically correct chicken leg reproduced mm. with my hand. Look at it go. Is that one of the reasons why your renovations are taking so long? Because you have installed chicken legs? In oh, yeah, condo? yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. We did move the entirety of my condo out into open air and then install chicken mm-hmm. legs under it. Incredible. And we had to sort of install a system where, like, in order to enter, you have to, like, answer a riddle and donate some of your mm. blood. Like, it's not, it's no big deal. But that did take a while to get the permits. Yeah, yeah, I I imagine. I also just would like really like to take a moment to give a shout out to Sycorax, who is Caliban's mm-hmm. mother in the Tempest, mm-hmm. who has the best witch name of all time. And it's a great um name. I always said that if I ever had a daughter I would name her Sycorax, but alas, <gasps> I am daughterless. Oh. Well, what are your favorite witches? So you made an you made an incredible list uh, ahead of time, and and you have a few of my favorites on there already, including Ursula and Mommy Fortuna. Now I feel complicated about Mommy Fortuna because I don't really like her. She's bad. Yeah, she captures creatures and keeps them in cages, but she's a witch, <laughs> and she meets her end. At the claws of a harpy. Yeah. And you know what? That's pretty badass. Mummy Fortuna is the witch in The Last Unicorn, for those who mm-hmm. have not yet watched The Last Unicorn. And by, yeah, I mean, it's your homework. <laughs> Go watch The Last Unicorn. Voiced by Angela Lansbury. Yeah, Mummy Fortuna. Incredibly. Slaps. I would like to take a moment to shout out, not Glinda the Good Witch of the North specifically, but rather the fellows in that viral video where they are having a fight about whether or not Glinda the Good Witch of the North is a princess. Yeah. Because that video brings me joy every single time I watch it. That's an important video. It is defining. It is culturally defining. I think a text of our modern moment. (laughs) 
definitely. <laughs> you know? She came down in a bubble, yeah. dog. Yeah. You're going to tell me that I'm wrong? Sorry, is that is coming down in a bubble witch thing or princess thing? No way to know. <laughs> no way to know. Great. Well, that's all we know about witches. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I feel like we could talk about witches and our favorite popular culture representations of witches and our favorite conversations that happen in pop culture about witches. I feel like we could talk about that all day. But if we want to impress our guest, we should get started on revision. You know what? It's a great idea. And I think uncharacteristically, we should begin with feminism. Oh, gross. I'm just joking. Please start. So specifically through the lens of feminist literary criticism, we have continuously throughout this podcast applied pressure to dominant worldviews that are based in white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. This is going to sound familiar if you've been listening. And those dominant narratives are very good at naturalizing white supremacy, class hierarchies, the sex and gender binaries, heterosexual monogamy, and capitalism in general as these natural or inevitable systems mm. rather than oppressive human-made systems. And, of course, part of how these systems are naturalized is through narrative, particularly oh, narratives that continuously cast straight, white, able-bodied men as heroes that portray queer, trans, and racialized people as monstrous or aberrant or less than human, mm -hmm. and that moralize wealth and class status by depicting them as rewards for virtuous behavior. Oh, boy. Boy, oh, boy. Yes, they do. They sure do, like so many of them, huh? I know. <laughs> okay, well, we've definitely talked about capitalism a few times, but I think that uh, we might want to revisit this excellent quote from revolutionary Marxist Kianga Yamada Taylor, professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, who defines capitalism as a system, quote, based on the exploitation of the many by the few. Because it is a system based on gross inequality, it requires various tools to divide the majority. Racism and all the oppressions under capitalism serve this purpose, end quote. So Taylor reminds us that we cannot understand the way capitalism generates artificial scarcity to keep us at each other's throats without understanding racism as, quote, necessary to drive a wedge between workers who otherwise have everything in common and every reason to ally and organize together, end quote. Is it more true if I yell it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you can really tell when Marcel believes something when she yells a quote. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We've also worked to understand some of these systems better by historicizing them. Always historicize. Historicize, historicize, it's always time to historicize. Through looking, for example, at the emergence of the nation-state as being connected to capitalism, so through Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities, we looked at how modernity in Europe, in particular, was characterized by the emergence of various systems that shook up the established feudal hierarchies, including... Mm. 
the printing press. We know her well. Mm. Scientific discovery, colonization, or quote-unquote exploration. Which is a fun thing European nations like to call it. Vernacular religious texts. That's like the Bible in a language that isn't Latin. Mm. And alongside vernacular texts, rising literacy, and then eventually new print publics organized around newspapers. What, what Anderson calls print capitalism. And alongside all of these changes came the rise of nations as, again, the thesis is in the title, Imagined Communities. I love it when the thesis is in the title. It's so helpful. So handy. Okay, so speaking of historicizing. Always historicize. Always historicize. We've also looked at the very concept of historicizing or historical memory, how we remember events from the past. For example, do we memorialize European modernity through a series of great, read, white, male, wealthy thinkers who transformed the status quo? Because that's certainly who we name streets and buildings and schools after. (laughs) We do! That's not a quote. I'm just yelling. (laughs) (laughs) But what about the experiences of all those living through modernity without leaving textual traces because they didn't have access to things like literacy or the emerging press. What do we know about them? And how, how, Hannah, how do we know it? I actually don't know, Marcel, but I think these are excellent questions. And I think it's time we maybe try to answer them. Awesome. Let's do it. All right. We've revised enough. It's time to get to the magic of learning new things and meeting new people in Transfiguration class. Our guest today is Dr. Nikki Fitzgerald, pronouns she, her. Nikki is an NHS doctor specializing in care of the elderly and general internal medicine. She has recently completed her Master's in Applied Medical Humanities at Burbeck University of London. Her dissertation was titled, Is Medicine Obsolete? An Abolitionist Feminist Reimagining with Flourishing and Care. Oh, that sounds so good. Nikki also organizes with her local cop watch group who build community resistance to police powers and state violence. Yes, Nikki. Yes. <laughs> she identifies as a Slitherpuff and lives in North London, England with her partner Lou and their dog Luna, who is all Ravenclaw. Welcome, Nikki. Welcome, Nikki. Thank you. It's amazing to be here. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so nice to have you. I'm obviously going to like just lock in immediately on the most important part of that bio, which is what does it mean to have a dog that's a Ravenclaw? Is your dog answering riddles? Yeah, like literally. She's part collie. She's a rescue, mm. but she it looks mainly like a collie. And yeah, she she can do riddles. She's oh. very clever. She's cleverer than most of the children I know. And she was had a different name when we went to the rescue place. And um, when uh, we took her for a little walk, I just looked at her and was like, she's a Ravenclaw. Like, no, she mm-hmm. can't be called that name. She is called Luna, and that is happening from now. (laughs) Nikki, do you want to start us off by telling us just a little bit about your relationship to Harry Potter and how you got the idea for this episode? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Harry Potter has been like an absolutely enormous part of my life, like since I was a very young child. Um, I had the the books all the way along. I used to reread them like in advance of every new one coming out. So I've read the first one mm-hmm. like innumerable times and like increasingly in, even in my adult life at times of stress, I would do a, a comfort reread. So like when I was organizing some strikes mm-hmm. as yeah. junior doctor strikes, we did some years ago and I got really stressed in the organizing. I did a reread, mm-hmm. but then a friend, shout out to Sarah Trevi, who sent Which Please My Way and that has been absolutely sort of imperative for me for like helping me manage the shittiness of the author (laughs) Mm -hmm. and allowing Mm -hmm. me to like have an ongoing like complex relationship to what have been really like important books in my life because otherwise like a sort of pre-critical reading me would have just been like okay Harry Potter's cancelled now but I'm also quite sad about that. (laughs) I don't know part of part of I think all of our ongoing relationship to the series is just being like okay well Mm. what do I do with this what do I do with this thing that I love and yet and yet this author seems to keep getting worse Mm -hmm. yeah so now I comfort re-listen to the original run of which please instead (laughs) 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 yeah not unproblematic in its own way but much better intentioned I think more willing to listen to feedback A hundred percent. So your very exciting pitch for this episode is about witch hunts, but is there a connection to this work you've been doing in your master's on medical humanities? Also, can you tell us just for the listeners what medical humanities is? For the listeners, not for us. We know. Yeah. So medical humanities is studying medicine and actually uh, health. So like some people are arguing we should actually call it the health humanities because it's not all about the doctors. Mm-hmm. So it's studying medicine and health more broadly through the lenses of humanities. Mm-hmm. And as with, I guess, quite a lot of fields, academic fields, there's like a few different schools of thought on what it is and like waves of what it has been and what it is now. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of like an original version, which is essentially old white men with elbow patches saying doctors should read books because it would make them more empathetic to their patients. But I think from mm. having read Hannah's book, we know that that's fully bullshit. So. <laughs> <laughs> Another theory ruined. <laughs> so yeah, I'm more into like the critical and applied medical humanities, which is kind of really applying critical theory to medicine and health more broadly and in that sense I kind of think of like medical humanities is to medicine what which pleases to Harry Potter that's so nice yeah like weirdly my master's was super aligned with like the reboots like so it'd just be like oh I've been set this book and you guys are talking about it on the podcast (laughs) it's like strangely mirroring so love that how did this lead to you studying witch hunts though yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one of the modules was going to to look at and, and access like a different practice from our own. And I kind mm. of re- like use that to reflect back on, on our original practice. And I kind of came to the conclusion throughout that module that my ideal practice would have been to actually sit in with a witch from like the time or just pre the witch burnings before she got burnt. And so that was how I ended up reading a whole bunch about that time and about the witch mm-hmm. hunts. And 
So yeah, this is definitely through a medical humanities lens and a, a way of a like accessing those histories as witches as healers, really. Mm -hmm. So what drew you to that conclusion that you would really like to learn from a <laughs> early modern witch? So uh, I guess increasing dissatisfaction with like the heteronormative, cisgendered white supremacist patriarchy that is like absolutely integral to medicine and its histories mm. and like feeling very implicated in that as a medical practitioner and feeling increasingly aware of it and how it's operating but n nobody else is like talking about it which is then mm -hmm. kind of mm. how I got to the masters and that being like a really necessary way of me staying in touch and being able to try and navigate a way through that without having to just leave my job mm -hmm. and I guess as I was like working through some of that rage in a really like like with a lot of trans studies actually is a really great way to access a whole bunch of rage uh I was like you know who who was um practicing like before all of this bullshit which is they, they were the community, mm -hmm. you know, healthcare professionals and, well, not professionals, that's the point. Professionalism is a tool of the patriarchy. Mm. They're the mm -hmm. community healers, essentially. Community healthcare amateurs. Yeah, like purposeful amateurs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Nikki, for folks listening who are really into this idea and want to learn more, is there like a central text that you would recommend that's been kind of particularly important to your thinking and learning? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say uh, there's two, like one was the kind of gateway, which is an amazing pamphlet called Witches, Midwives and Nurses by Barbara Ehrenreich and Deirdre English. Mm -hmm. And that was like self-researched and published as part of the 1970s women's movement and the women's health movement. And it's a, mm -hmm. an amazing cool thing but um what that sort of i think led to then a more detailed study which comes from silvia federici called caliban and the witch and that really mm -hmm. gives a, a big kind of overview and deep dive of the witch hunts and also their relationship to the capitalist transition silvia federici is one of those those feminist thinkers who's like name i know but i've never read any of her work can you give us like a sort of in a nutshell like who is she why is she important yeah so she's italian but has worked i think works mainly in the united states and has spent some time in nigeria she describes herself as a feminist writer teacher and militant mm -hmm. she's the co-founder of the international feminist collective and launched the wages for housework campaign internationally mm. so yeah she's a marxist feminist and like caliban and the witch is her kind of really well-known sort of seminal text mm. I am aware that there is like this whole sort of Marxist feminist theoretical world that is about labor, <laughs> like reproductive labor, reproductive labor. That is the phrase that I sometimes hear Marxist feminists say as part of a like the feminist intervention into Marxism. And I'm like, I don't I don't know what it, I don't know what it means. <laughs> I'm not a feminist Marxist, and I think that's quite important to stay like right out as to like I've been muddling through this also as like because it was it's 
very important about the witch hunts. But yeah, I think mm-hmm. she does talk about that, about the like re- like reproductive labor, like productive and reproductive. And like, it's this idea that the like reproduction of the worker, so that is, you know, like the physical reproduction of like having a baby, but also mm-hmm. like oh. feeding, clothing, like making the worker like able to go out to work and how that mm-hmm. has been essentially invisibilized, domesticated, and is unwaged and remains unwaged and un and and that mm-hmm. that was like mm. actually it's going to be quite important to what we talk about it's like a that was one of the aims of the witch hunts was to drive women inside in the house reproducing workers for free when they weren't necessarily doing that before you made reference to a term that i don't understand i've never heard the term capitalist transition before and i feel like I could probably make an educated guess about what it is, but there's no mm-hmm. way that I could possibly know whether or not I'm right. So can you please explain what the capitalist transition is and then and then maybe talk about what it has to do with the witch hunts? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's the transition to capitalism. Wait, like, ah. <laughs> as, as, I knew as, it! But like <laughs> what it actually is, you're right to ask because it is contested. So I think like capitalists would argue that the capitalist transition was just like, oh, feudalism was bad, which was what was before capitalism. So then everyone just came mm-hmm. out with these like this really good idea to just be capitalist instead. And then everything would naturally progress and be better in the future uh, and good for yeah, everyone. And we can all agree modernity is better. So capitalism's great. Yeah, that's what they'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Not us, though. We're on to them. Yeah. So sort of accessing this history and this transition is often like an important part. This is what Federici says anyway, of like a of a Marxist political education to try and kind of get back to that mm-hmm. time and see how things can be or could have been otherwise to like sort of explore how it came about and how the transition was actually enacted to also think about ways of resisting it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because historicizing is a way of making the present Mm non-inevitable. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what Federici actually does like amazingly because Marx amidst the witch hunts there's obviously like a lot of omission in the marxist history kind of up until federici of like what the deal was with how this affected women Mm -hmm. and so like it was extremely necessary intervention to have like a feminist reading of what was going on and actually the sort of landscape that federici paints of like all the various stuff resistance pressure points things that were going on like broadly and specifically for women is like really illuminating and kind of yeah it's like this seething hotbed of lots of resistance in all these places it's amazing Hmm. so it has never occurred to me before to think about the witch hunts in relation to capitalism same i've always thought about it in relation to you know, patriarchy. patriarchy and the church. Mm-hmm. So this is this is a again a an exciting new idea for me. Can you can you sort of draw out that connection a little more? What did the witch hunts have to do with the capitalist transition? Why are those part of the same story? Yeah, well, I think that it's kind of maybe Im- uh, important, like. F- First off, to sort of go into some of that stuff that Federici was talking about, the like the historicizing, the lay of the land, mm-hmm. and it then makes a bit more sense as to why it was where the witch hunts come in and and like 
the why it was so important essentially to control mm-hmm. women yeah. in order to achieve it. So sort of another one of those like Marxist terms that you might have heard talked about and not known what it was is primitive accumulation. <laughs> and she talks about it in Caliban the Witch and I had to like look it up a whole lot and didn't really know either. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of like the start of capitalism and it's like so primitive it's like the early the starting bit and accumulation uh, which is aka accumulating other people's stuff which is stealing as far as oh. I, I know so yeah <laughs> oh, so early stealing accumulation early stealing <laughs> um, so basically to get like the initial capital to start doing capitalism and like exchanging capital and making money and making more and more capital uh, they had to mm-hmm. steal a bunch of stuff and take control over it. And so the things that needed to be accumulated or stolen were land, ah, bodies. Like steal whole countries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the bodies that lived in those countries right. and those Shit. bodies, the time of those bodies. So yeah, land, bodies, labor, wealth, time. They're like some mm-hmm. of the things that there was like, they were grabbing and, and stealing all over the the place and so obviously each of those like particularly stealing other people's countries like that could talk quite a lot about that and you know as a british person there's a lot to be reckoned with in terms of the history of britain stealing other people's countries yeah. like there there was the land grabs in terms of colonialism but there was also like an initial mm-hmm. land grab in the european countries where this was like coming out is of. this the enclosure movement yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So hmm. like what's the enclosure movement? I don't know that thing. So the enclosure of the common lands, you might have heard of that, that before like when you talk about it in relation to that. So there were common lands which like each village or community had common lands that they would have their own little bit of but they would generally like communally farm and make their own food. And actually, they weren't workers at the time, like feudalism weren't really paid in money. It was much more an exchange and you got given plots of land for doing work. So then Hmm. you could make your own food. So it's like the kind of worker is much closer and produces themselves. They don't have to go through money to like get what they need. Mm -hmm. But because like capitalism required more land to like commercially farm it, so they not only stopped giving people land, they also enclosed the common land, so they stole it. And so then that's kind of, in Marxist words, like the expropriation of the worker from the land. So ah. it's like stealing the land and then making them work on it for poverty wages. And then they have to like buy the food that there has been made out of the like produce that they have been farming, mm-hmm. which is, you know, kind of what happens now so it's like Federici talks about it it causing this like distancing then between the worker and like the means of production aka the land where they make food Mm -hmm. there was a lot at the time in feudalism of like resistance to feudalism itself so there was like people kind of even like within those exchanges there was like People would just like do it really slowly, like any work for the Lord, they would just like have all these like little ways of resisting. And like Mm -hmm. there was the sort of low level resistance that Federici describes. But then there's like right up to the like peasant revolts and the peasant wars where they're just like, this is bullshit. We don't want to work like this anymore. Mm -hmm. And so actually Federici kind of describes the capitalist transition as like the ruling class is seeing 
particularly the peasant revolts as like a challenge to their power mm-hmm. and capitalism being a series of techniques for them to regain power and control over the peasants. Oh, that's so interesting because I feel like the way that I understand like the transition from feudalism to capitalism in my understanding, it's always been more like, oh, well, that's when the middle class emerged and took power from the aristocracy. But what you're saying is actually these were tools that the aristocracy was able to use in order to continue to have control over the land and withhold it from the working classes. Absolutely. And they like they were peasants then they weren't even working classes right, because right, of course, they yes. didn't work for bosses they like did some work for the lord to get their plot of land so that they could farm but they like were always trying to find ways to spend more time on their own land so they could make food for them and their family and their community That's right. and mm-hmm. like federici talks about also the other affordances that were there so there was you know common access to ponds lakes streams forests for fuel right. for catching fish like it's actually much more mm-hmm. in common with what we'd understand about like traditional indigenous ways of being in relation to the land that's right and so these techniques were obviously then exported as part of colonialism mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i know that that sort of project of colonialism like england practiced it first on wales and scotland and ireland of like enclosing the land, disrupting traditional relationships to the land, and then exporting the people whose land and livelihoods they disrupted to North America to perpetuate colonialism there. Like, it's all sort of part of a a continuous project. Yeah, and I think that's really important because we often think of them as like, or certainly even when I was taught history at school, it's like we taught about enclosure like in one time and then like decade later we're talking about like the atlantic slave trade and it's like actually it's all like part of the same sort of thing Hmm. but nikki what about the witches where did the (laughs) witches come in were they in those forests that the villagers were allowed to wander into absolutely yeah so they like part of the capitalist transition like a really important part of it was needing to control women partly because yeah a lot of women were putting up a lot of resistance. So like I say, you kind of get this feeling of like it being a lot of resistance everywhere all the time. And there's some argument that, you know, there were earlier revolts that then killed a lot of the men, but the women kind of Mm. maintain those knowledges of the forms of resistance required. They're also mm. like big in like heretic movement, which Federici actually describes more as like a movement for social justice and like a different mm-hmm. way of doing Christianity that was less like obviously bullshit. Because at the time they were, you know, taking money. It's like you you pay us and we'll pray a bunch so that you can go to heaven. So you just, the more you can pay us, the more right. likely you go go to heaven and that kind of thing and the heretics were just like that doesn't sound right so yeah there were a lot of women active in the resistance there was someone uh, that uh, Federici cites called Captain Dorothy who I just love the idea of and she led a band of 37 women to fight off the enclosure of some mining land in Yorkshire there's like a number of reasons then that like women needed to be controlled so we sort of the resistance is a big one but like another one as we kind of talked about is for capitalism to like have workers who are like regularized and produced and able to go out to work they 
wanted to push mm-hmm. women into the domestic sphere and kind of make them do that work for free without labor because they um, a lot of women mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. been going out to work like this is you know it's mainly like a rural history that's given but Federici does talk about some of the urban stuff and there were women like working in guilds and things even like earlier than this time so it was like ways of of yeah forcing them into the domestic sphere but also kind of making them into the domestic sphere and like controlling their sexuality essentially to mm. make them repopulate after huge sort of decimations to the population through wars and all the like revolts and the plague and starvation and like because of huge taxation as well so we want women who are afraid to be in public and we want women not to know how to practice things like abortion. Exactly. So you want the women to be in the house having the babies and not being able to control their fertility in any way. And I think between the pamphlet I mentioned earlier and Federici, you do get this real sense that, you know, the women who were community health practitioners were witches or wise women and they definitely they were you know skilled in providing kind of medicinal or herbal ways for women to take control over their fertility so it's sort of Mm -hmm. a double whammy Mm -hmm. you want all the women to be frightened but you particularly want to target the women who have access and knowledge to contraception and termination so we get witch hunts yeah Exactly. And I think one of the important things about the witch hunts, because we already talked about it, like maybe being about religion, is that Mm -hmm. the construction of the witch does come from like religion, from like Christianity in sort of like the 14th century. But actually the witch hunts, they are state organized. They are not necessarily carried out by the church. There were laws passed that described what a witch was and made witchcraft a crime. So Though it was the witch was maybe first sort of described in the 14th century, the witch hunts were actually in the 16th and 17th century. And that's where there were state organized trials of hundreds of thousands of women where they were, you know, tortured, put on trial and then, you know, burnt at the stake. Learning about the witch hunts as a teenager is what first radicalized me. Mm. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I still remember reading about them and being like, sorry, wait. Sorry, (laughs) just thousands of women were systematically and legally murdered? Why isn't everybody more upset about this? That is a really, I feel like whatever the thing is that radicalizes you, Mm. that feeling of, wait, why aren't people more upset about this? It tends to be that sort of first, Mm -hmm. that first sensation. Wait a minute, shouldn't we all be angry? Why isn't everybody else angry? And another feminist is born. <laughs> okay, can I do some uh, some re-piecing together just to make sure that I'm following? Because there are so many moving parts to this history. So the, the capitalist transition steals land and people and resources. People were already unhappy with feudalism. Fair. Doesn't sound great. Capitalism was an opportunity to reassert authority over the people unhappy with feudalism. People continued to resist this. And the ways in which women were resisting were particularly 
unruly and the state was able to enact laws to disempower these women and in so doing move them more into a domestic sphere where they now thoroughly disempowered are literally reproducing the capitalist system by having babies and raising children and not being able or allowed to do anything else. Am I following? Absolutely, yeah. What a good student. Okay, so here's my question. I often find that I talk about the state and I don't always know who I'm talking about when I say the state. So in the situation where the state is enacting these laws to torture and assassinate women, torture and murder women, is the state the aristocracy or the church or a combination or new, like, capitalist landowners or a combination? Who's the state? It's difficult to say. I think basically part of the transition was reconfiguring those relationships. Gotcha. So part of it is the aristocracy, but there are like pacts made between the aristocracy, the church, like, I guess, a form of central government that's related to the crown. That's the kind of feeling I got from reading it. But the detail is a bit sketchy. But yeah, I think that the important point to me is that we so often are like, oh, God, the church is terrible and they enacted all of it because it's often depicted in popular culture as being priests. And priests did conduct trials, but it's more, mm-hmm. much more of a coalition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they are state documents that people are uncovering in archives and re-looking at with a different eye now to sort of say, hang on, what the fuck is up with that? Like, Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean... I think a useful reminder is that this is a period before really much articulation of the separation between church and state, right? Which is like a sort of later revolutionary idea. And so, you know, when we look at the relationship between, say, the monarchy Mm -hmm. and the church, part of the point was that the monarch was the representative of God on earth. So, like, those are not really divided. But my understanding of the state is that it's like literally whatever body imposes laws. So it beca- it's like, okay, well, whoever hmm. is in a position to claim that they are the one who gets to make laws and then punish people for breaking them is the state. Yeah, I think that kind of marries up with my reading from Federici because a lord of the manor could just have a bunch of trials and try a load of women and burn them all yeah you get to declare yourself the state if you have the largest police force the state is whoever makes laws and can enforce them and you enforce them through through policing which is why the sheriff of nottingham is such an important foundational villain (laughs) literature's first cop oh boy learn so much from disney you know here is another question as close to my heart as the question of what the state is and that is a question about magic Mm. which is sometimes when we talk about the witch burnings we people not not me but people will sort of frame 
what was irrational about the witch burnings through asserting that the women were not really witches Mm. and that claims that they were doing magic were false or invented or hysterical. Mm -hmm. So I guess what is Federici's stance on magic and the sort of quote unquote realness of witchcraft and like maybe maybe like what's yours if it's different from Federici's or the same? Yeah, I actually have a a quote. She said, uh, the witch hunt was also crucial to the erasure of magic as a universe of practices, beliefs, and social subjects whose existence was incompatible with capitalist work discipline. Wait, so magic is irreconcilable with capitalism? Yes. Incredible. Hot. Yeah. Part of her argument is that it, it wasn't just witches as maybe some wise women or some older women who were, you know, really pissed off that they'd been dispossessed from their like land and and poor relief it's that this was a widespread system of of belief and practices that we would like now call superstition but we've been made to think that it's superstition because of a like concerted campaign against this way of of understanding the world and that it's much more in touch with kind of the affordances of nature and the land and I think much more connected with the land and, and your own body is the way that I see it. There's like interesting example that she sort of uses to illustrate mm-hmm. this as being kind of anathema to the capitalist work ethic is that there were superstitious days. There's like lucky days and unlucky days and if it's an unlucky day you don't go out the house you just stay home Mm -hmm. and you can't have like a capitalist job where people have to go every day to the same place for the same Mm -hmm. hours if they're just not going to turn up because it but i'm Mm -hmm. like that's a much better way of being in the world is like today is an unlucky day i need to stay every day (laughs) under capitalism is an unlucky day as far as i'm concerned i feel like we're seeing a little bit of this returning with the rise of astrology Mm -hmm. and the way people will be like, I'm sorry, I actually can't go to work today because Mercury is in retrograde. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I actually just can't. (laughs) I actually just can't. I can't do that meeting. Sorry, Mercury is in retrograde. Sorry. Sorry. Um, But I'm totally into it because, yeah, if you're in a Pisces season, there are some things you just shouldn't be discussing. So with all of this in mind, it's really interesting to think about how the witch hunts are represented mm-hmm. and like how we, you know, we've, we're, we've been talking about historical memory. Like how is this period memorialized and how do we talk about the witch hunts? Yeah. I think Federici in particular in her later work is really mad about how we talk about it. And that, that comes <laughs> through in Caliban and the witch. And I enjoyed that as another way of accessing rage during the piece of work I was doing. And it's just, I, as you said, Hannah, when you were just like, why, why aren't we more angry about this? Because it's often just represented, like, I mean, in popular culture, it's often like a comic device, or, uh, but, but there's even, you know, uh, Federici quotes a history of psychiatry that was written in like the 1970s that sort of describes all the witches as being like hysterical mad women who'd now be in an asylum. 
So right. it's like, oh, there was nothing wrong with burning all those women. They, they were mad and that's fine. We'd just, we'd lock them up now instead rather than be like, what might have been going on as to why the whole of Western Europe decided to yeah. burn swathes of its population. And I think that the other point that Federici has mentioned in recent interviews is that, you know, there are sites of witch burnings where there are museums and in the gift shop, you can just mm. buy a doll of a witch that's like all green and old and lol but there's like no other kind of mass killing of uh, state sponsored yeah, murder where you then buy a comical toy at the, in the gift shop i mean it also it also makes me think about the way that like indigenous iconography is sold as tourist trash yeah on stolen indigenous mm-hmm. lands the flavor is That's the right. same yeah well i obviously want to dig more into this question of the memorialization of witch hunts and cultural representations of witch hunts. And lucky for us, we've got this shared text that talks about witch hunts that we can use. (laughs) Do you want to go do that now? I think that's a fantastic idea, Hannah. Are we all ready to test our knowledge by seeing what new dimensions of the Harry Potter books this knowledge elucidates? I hope so, because that's exactly what we do in Owls. Okay, so when I first sort of saw this pitch, the thing that came to mind immediately was that part in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, where Harry has been assigned an essay about why 14th century witch burning was pointless. I guess because you can't burn real witches. And so they, I guess they only burned innocent people. I know it's... It's extremely troubling. Like when I read Caliban the Witch, that's I like immediately had to write to you because I was just like, oh God, this is horrifying. Like the idea that there's these witches who are just at a stake, like next to some muggle women, or are they muggles? But next to some other women who are being burnt alive, and they're just like, mm-hmm. this is so fun. Yeah, you've you've you've, you've helpfully included for us the the language from the book here, which reads. The witch or wizard would perform a basic flame-freezing charm and then pretend to shriek with pain while enjoying a gentle tickling sensation. Indeed, Wendelin the Weird enjoyed being burnt so much that she allowed herself to be caught no fewer than 47 times in various disguises. (laughs) Which, the idea that witch burnings were mostly jokes and that the witches were letting themselves be caught is so sinister Mm. if you think through even one implication yeah absolutely i mean because it even says like on like the rare occasions that they caught a real witch so it's like muggles are so stupid they just are catching all these not real witches but if they do catch a real one they're just yeah, it, it's still a figure of fun and even the witch who enjoyed it like she's kind of being mocked in this real like misogynist tone uh, like Wendell in the weird like she's so weird and we're, aren't women stupid and also if it was a rare occasion that they caught an actual witch 
a lot of women were being murdered. And they knew about it and they didn't just go and help? Stop them? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Instead, they like cosplayed <laughs> as them for mm -hmm. fun. This feels very much like one of those many ways in which the novels, if you put a little bit of pressure on them and think through the implications, are so unbelievably hateful, but kind of in the way that they just reproduce the same ideologies that we already have, right? Like, we already don't trust women. We already love to, like, ridicule the idea of difference. And then to add to that, this history that Nikki, you've shared with us from Sylvia Federici's work really, in a lot of ways, frames this not just as a kind of horrifying, ridiculous representation of an actually terrible thing that happened to thousands of people, but it's also very silly, but like silly in a, I don't know how to, I don't know. Yeah, when you start to really think through the witch hunts and like humanize the women who've been murdered by the state you know and think of mm -hmm. them as actual kind of peasant women at the time but i guess what we might think of it you know proletariat women right. you know working class women mm -hmm. and you you know actually think of them as real mm. it just becomes untenable to read this in any other way than it's completely horrible mm -hmm. yeah and i guess that's what it's sort of showing us is that that there has been none of that that thought and it also really reproduces that divide the wizard muggle divide that's whatever they're mm -hmm. up to is separate and it's silly yeah like muggles are silly women are silly even the witches in our own mm -hmm. side are kind of silly but like it's all that's the spectrum of it yeah yeah and like thinking about the fact that so many of these women would have been like what we would today think of as activists. It's also really horrifying to realize that this is a pop culture reference to like exterminating activists. And that's really, it leaves me mm. speechless. Like I'm so, I'm so disgusted. Yeah. And like, has rolling red Sylvia Federici? Probably not. But then that just kind of, in a lot of ways, it just makes it worse. It's also part of this sort of larger through line in the in the whole book series that, that we've talked about of like, the worst villains are the ones who have nothing but disdain for muggles. But the book series mm -hmm. itself has nothing but disdain mm -hmm. for muggles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is one of many, like, this, this makes a joke of the mass murder of muggle women and, and activists mm -hmm. who were doing, like, you know, in the political events that were unfolding at the time and all, like, you know, it just becomes a sort of goofy joke in a way that aligns with how everything we see of the muggle world is dismissed derided the muggle characters that we're introduced to are at best silly and at worst outright villainous mm -hmm. and it is what sort of one of those like profound irreconcilable aspects of this book series for me is just like 
the series at a narrative level is espousing the very fascist beliefs that we're supposed to be rejecting. I mean, and I guess that makes sense. Like in a lot of ways, a lot of course it does, because those fascist beliefs are, as we have come to learn, are the logical extension of our own liberal ideologies, right? Like that's so it makes sense that you can't divorce fascism from liberalism, but it's that the inherent contradictions are unconscious or that the the series itself is ignorant of of the inherent contradictions, you know? Okay, so so speaking of like structural ignorance in the series, mm-hmm. can we talk about what we know from the books about what was going on in the wizarding world around the time of the witch burnings? Other than this one sort of hilarious anecdote we get about Wendelin the Weird, what else was going on in the wizarding world while muggles were burning women? Yeah, because this is what also doesn't make sense about Harry's question, is that it says witch burnings of the 14th century, which were not really actually happening. It was mainly in the 16th and 17th century. So I think that leaves a big question. And what was going on in the 17th century was the International Statute of Secrecy. So mm-hmm. from some fandom searching and not going back through all of the texts, it's this International Statutes of Secrecy was 1689 and fully instituted in 1692. So that is in like the height of the witch burnings. Right. Yeah. And that's the like official separation of the wizarding world and the muggle world where it becomes like, we don't let them know that we exist. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of, again, there's not an awful lot said about it, but it sort of also doesn't totally make sense because what it says is it was for the protection of the wizards that they were being treated increasingly in a in a hostile manner by the muggles, which would then, it, even if you sort of, by that as an official line is like, well, surely you're talking about the fact they're trying to burn all the <laughs> all the magical people. Yeah. And so you decide like that would be mm-hmm. quite a reasonable, yeah. you know, thing to do is to decide to go completely underground because mm-hmm. you want to stop particularly your like the women in your community from being like tortured and murdered. Yeah, on a regular. Mm-hmm. So so reasonable. Yeah. To be like, oh, what's a good reason that in the 1600s, wizards <laughs> would suddenly be like, maybe we need to not let muggles see us do magic. Like, oh, maybe it's the witch burnings. Maybe that's maybe that's the one. But it is weird, isn't it, that it's the wizards who created the the statute of secrecy but witches who were being burned. Exactly. And I'm I'm just like, there's something up with that for sure. And like, to my mind and my reading, it's like, I, I think there's just like the Malfoys, like the landed gentry of the wizarding world doing a complete power grab on the magic. So mm. like, to my mind, this is, you actually blur mm. the line. It's like magic was mm. real. Magic was a system of beliefs that was you know, widely practiced, particularly amongst the peasantry. And witches and wizards were living cheek by jowl with muggles. So, like, actually, mm-hmm. if it was a widespread system of beliefs, there probably wasn't such a thing as a muggle. That was probably a, a category created That's after right. the International Statutes of Secrecy. Mm. And so right. they were all living together. And then as part of capitalism, they needed to get rid of magic. 
and there's the Malfoys up at the manor being like, hang on, I can see a sort of mm -hmm. way through that we can get around this. And they sign up with the state to say, okay, some of us will keep some power and some magic and mm -hmm. we'll go underground while you crack on and burn all the all the proletariat or the yeah, the peasantry. Yeah. And you know, this makes so much sense when I think back to the conversation that we had years ago with our friend Andrea Hasenbank when she talked about the mode of production in the wizarding world and how I believe she saw it as being feudal and not well, it's definitely not capitalist, but I think she argued that it was feudal or like slightly post-feudal. I can't remember exactly how she phrased it, but it was artisanal. Oh, arti you would know, Nikki. What is oh, what did you, what did Andrea say? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't actually listen to that episode in my revision, but I remember it. Yeah, artisanal, and that was part of feudalism. Is that there were you know people who worked the land, but there were also artisans, like skilled right. makers. So yeah, that mm -hmm. would. That would definitely, yeah, tie in. Huh. Yeah, yeah. It also ties into that conversation we had with Ella McLeod on a bonus interview about cats and and the way that cats hang out with mm -hmm. squibs, which, which suggests like the presence of these magical animals with squibs, sort of a reminder that like the difference between a muggle and a wizard a muggle a wizard and a squib is mm -hmm. it is a state imposed distinction that operates mm -hmm. through the totally undivided like functionally undivided system of the ministry for magic and hogwarts mm -hmm. because those are like you know dumbledore tries a little bit to resist those integrated systems but they're pretty they're pretty integrated like hogwarts is is state education it's state funded and state run education and your admission into hogwarts is what triggers your access to a wand your access to magic your mm -hmm. access to this whole world and all of its infrastructure you know a wand is what makes you a subject in the eye of the wizarding state so the international statute of secrecy becomes this like very clear like some rich families are now going to decide who gets to count as magic and who doesn't, mm -hmm. which is why we should not be fantasizing about getting our Hogwarts letters, but rather should be fantasizing about dismantling the entire system that Hogwarts represents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was just one other point I was going to make, and I, I don't know if it will mm -hmm. like, feed in, is that it actually has some really strong resonances with the expropriation of which is women as healthcare professionals mm. Mm. by an educated upper class medical professionalized doctor. Mm -hmm. So it became like licensed. You had to have a degree from a university and actually witches were burnt for curing people. Like you didn't have to be a bad witch. If even if you gave health good healthcare, right. that still proved you were a witch because That's you right. cured people. So they burnt you for curing your community. And there were often like sort of the male scientific doctors overseeing some of the trials to make sure they were, I don't know, like scientific or, or proper. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I see a, a real kind of parallel of the upper class male professionalized doctors casting out the health providing witches and like the Malfoys kind of 
swanning in and, and professionalizing and maybe making the magic more scientific because we see it kind of requires this book learning, this theory. It requires apparatus like a wand. Mm. It ties in with that kind of enlightenment renaissance. And you could imagine like a Malfoy ancestor being all up in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of official magic is distinguished from the sort of dangerous, unofficial magic that is done by other magical creatures mm-hmm. who work without wands and so, like, can't be trusted. Like, even if we think about, like, Madame Pomfrey, she's she's the, the Hogwarts matron, but everything about her realm in Hogwarts is hospitalized, right? So it's all very, like... Western scientific mm. study of medicine sort of hospital wing. It's even called the hospital wing, isn't it? And yet, like, you've got, like, Professor Sprout, who's literally growing, like, all kinds of, like, herbs and everything, but there is but there is a very clear division between Professor Sprout, who does the growing, and then Madame Pomfrey, who is authorized to do the administering. Mm. And yet it also requires Snape to do the Wolfsbane potion. Like, why can't Madame Pomfrey do the Wolfsbane potion? She why can't can. Madame Rosmerta make it? I bet she, I bet she'd brew up a, a flagon in no time. Why is that knowledge controlled? Why is it restricted? Right, all of these, yeah. all of these systems of restriction and control. What a bummer. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch, Please. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or praise. Praise. Mostly praise. You can come hang out with us at Oh Witch, Please on Instagram or Twitter. And of course, always the best way to get more of us and to praise us is to go to patreon.com slash Oh Witch, Please, where you can get so much content and also, most excitingly, Help us figure out what we're going to do next after we finish this reread of the Harry Potter books. Because, you know, we want to know from you, you specifically. If you think I'm talking to you right now, I am. It's you. If you don't do social media, no worries. We have a newsletter to keep you in the loop for all of our adventures. And you can sign up on our website. Also, please read my book. It's called A Sentimental Education. And it's good. And Nikki read it. And you want to be cool like Nikki. Also, Marcel read it. And you want to be cool like Marcel. Also, Coach read it. And you want to be cool like Coach. Everybody who's cool has read it is what I'm saying. Venn diagram. Perfect circle. Mm -hmm. Which, please, is distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes on Acast or at ohwitchplease.ca, which, as a website, I got to say, is expanding faster than the universe every day thanks to our awesome newest team member gabby you can find transcripts merch you can sign up for our newsletter you gotta you gotta go just check it out you'll love it special thanks as always to our executive producer hannah rehack aka coach to our social media manager and marketing designer zoe mix And to our sound engineer, Eric Magnus.
at the end of every episode, we shout out everyone who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And I gotta say, I think that we accidentally got found by some misogynists because we have been getting kind of a spate of one-star reviews with people calling the podcast woke nonsense. So we need you to drown them out. When did woke nonsense become a criticism? I'm proudly a proud producer of woke nonsense, but please help us drown them out by reviewing us. And as a special perk, if you review us, you get to hear Marcel coming out of her cage, but doing just fine. Thanks this week to Kaznaindu, Panna Markotsis, Kazmira J, and SV in WA. We'll be back next episode to add to the appendices. But until then, later, witches.